0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of
1: knowledge and expertise. Back in 2018, then SEC Commissioner and past guest of the Insecurities podcast, Rob Jackson, spoke at the Tulane Corporate Law Institute on corporate governance on the front lines of America's cyber war. After a string of high-profile data breaches in the previous years, the SEC adopted a statement and interpretive guidance on public company cybersecurity disclosures in February of that year, which focused on the considerations and appropriate ways to evaluate the need to disclose a data breach or other cybersecurity issue. More recently, the Office of Compliance, Inspections, and Examinations, now known as the Division of Examinations, issued its Cybersecurity and Resiliency Observations Report in 2020, to share its observations of managing and combating cybersecurity risk and the maintenance and enhancement of operational resiliency through its countless exams over the past few years. The report focuses in the areas of governance and risk management, access rights and controls, data loss prevention, mobile security, incident response and resiliency, vendor management, and training and awareness. As expected, Commissioner Jackson's comments in 2018 still ring true today. In his speech, he stated that, quote, No issue in recent years has rocketed to the top of the corporate agenda faster. In 1975, 17% of S&P 500 firms' market value was tied to intangible assets. In 2015, that number was 87%. One recent study showed that nearly two-thirds of executives identified cyber threats as a top-five risk to their company's future. That shows how quickly this has become a board-level issue. Today, there is no doubt for top corporate counsel. If you're not talking about cyber risk with your clients in the boardroom, you're making a mistake. We're joined by two guests today who will share insights regarding cybersecurity and their views on regulation so that you don't find yourself making that mistake. Today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. I'm glad we're sticking with the fresh and wonky tagline. We are still fresh and still wonky. That might wear off at some point down the road, but we'll use it while we can. I'm excited for this episode today. We're actually
2: filling a gap in the insecurities catalog. We've been talking for a while about doing a cybersecurity episode, and we're just now getting to it. Uh, We're thrilled to be joined by two experts in the space. And... There is maybe no better time than now to talk about cybersecurity, as the COVID-19 pandemic really seems to be bringing out the cyber scammers, and the transition to a largely work-from-home environment for many companies has exposed material weaknesses in the cybersecurity preparedness programs and resources. So... Today, we're going to talk about what a cyber attack or a cyber threat is. We'll talk a bit about the cybersecurity landscape here in the U.S., making sure our listeners understand what's expected of them. We'll talk about what cybersecurity regulatory priorities we expect to see during the Biden administration. And we'll talk about some cybersecurity best practices. Of course, Chris, we're going to end the episode with a fun little lightning round and test our our experts' knowledge of the cyberspace just a little bit, just for fun.
1: As long as that round's not password protected, I'm ready to go.
2: (laughs) Man, uh, I read an awful lot of cybersecurity dad jokes that I did not put in the outline for the thing today. But I mean, some of them, some of them are good, like the best eight character password. Chris, do you know what it is? I can't pull it right now, Kurt. What you got? Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, all spelled out. Boom, there you go. As I mentioned, we're joined by two <laughs> extraordinary guests, Robert Peek and Chris Hetner. Let's get to the bios. and I will start with Robert Peek. Uh, Robert is actually our second, I think, repeat guest on the Insecurities podcast. If you listeners go back to episode 17 called Watching the Watchers, we talked with Robert and Jovi Deadeye about the role of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the PCAOB. As a refresher for any new listeners, Robert has held a number of high-ranking advisory positions at the SEC and the PCAOB, as well as on the Hill. Robert previously served as a special advisor to PCAOB board member J. Robert Brown, Jr. He served on the executive staff of the SEC and as a policy advisor to Commissioner Kara Stein. He also served on the staff at the SEC in the Division of Corporation Finance and the Division of Enforcement and in the office of the Chief Accountant. Robert also served in the U.S. Senate, working as a staff member on Senate Banking Committee issues, as well as staffing the Senate Subcommittee on Securities, Insurance, and Investment. Robert is now focusing on cybersecurity policy, and he recently co-authored an article titled, U.S. 2021 Cyber Agenda May Affect Liability, Disclosure, and Enforcement, written for the National Association of Corporate Directors Board Talk blog. He wrote that article with our second guest, Chris Hetner. Chris Ekimov, tell us a little bit about Chris.
1: Chris is a leader in the cybersecurity, risk management, and regulatory compliance space with more than 25 years in the industry. He's held a number of impressive cybersecurity roles, including as GE Capital's Global Chief Information Security Officer and as EY's Wealth and Asset Management Cybersecurity Practice Leader. Chris served as Senior Cybersecurity Advisor to former SEC Chairman Jay Clayton and as a Senior Staff Member on the U.S. Treasury Department's Financial and Banking Information Infrastructure Committee. Chris is currently on the Executive Leadership Team at IANS Research. He serves as a Special Advisor for Cybersecurity at the National Association of Corporate Directors, or NACD, and as an Expert Advisor at the Institute for Defense Analyses. He also serves proudly as a national board member with the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers and a mentor with the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals. Chris, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. I'm interested to see if we can uh, rope our maybe our third repeat guest in with you, Chris. So uh, maybe Robert's just a glutton for punishment, but we're glad to have both of you guys on. Most of our conversation today is going to focus on cyber risks and the security challenges that financial services firms and other businesses face. But when we talk about cyber threats, we're talking broadly about efforts to damage data, steal that data, or disrupt digital life. Those threats may take any number of forms from computer viruses and malware, ransomware, phishing scams and spear phishing, business email compromise, denial of service or DOS attacks. I've even heard about malicious charging cords for mobile devices and a new scam that makes it look like there's dust or hair on your iPhone screen to trick you into tapping that screen. Uh, Guys, I I live in fear, right? Even after reading that paragraph, uh, one of my mantras that that I try to share professionally and personally is never, never, never click the link. Chris, can you break down some of those cyber threats into a more meaningful and specific set of buckets for us?
3: So there's, there's something to be said about uh, being inherently untrustworthy or, or uh, feeling a level of insecurity when operating on the internet, uh, clicking on an app, clicking on an email link, and as we should be, because the adversaries are increasingly focused on the exploitation of the individual uh, using the technology as a core mechanism to drive that exploitation and at the end of the day, uh, it could cause uh, level of disruption to the individual and to the enterprise. So I started in my career uh, in the early 90s as a pre law student. I recall uh, a professor uh, sitting me down and said, Chris, the bad guys are going to go from robbing banks with guns to executing complex code over computer networks. And here we are, uh, the movies playing right in front of our eyes. The World Economic Forum projects by the year 2025 that cybercrime will cost the global economy upward of 10 trillion dollars. So this is real dollars and cents, um, pounds, uh, pick the currency. And so this is problematic. So the way I think about the categories of cyber attack is number one, um, what's the level of information or the type of information that I'd be in a position to steal from a particular company? And typically it's in the form of two broad categories, one being intellectual property, so think of trade secrets, insider information on potential MA plans, could be uh, research and development activity that's going to be stolen by the adversary to be repurposed to uh, improve market share, to decrease your market share. Whatever it may be, it's, it's causing damage that information has left the, uh, the back door. Two uh, would be the stolen information uh, uh, associated with personal identifiable information. So think of uh, names of individuals, uh, account numbers, social security numbers, national IDs—it's information, data, si- signed to the individual, and and that that's interesting information uh, from adversarial perspective because they can now uh, perpetrate a wide range of attacks using uh, identity theft schemes, phishing scams, you know, spinning up uh, lines of credit. Uh, we're seeing now a preponderance of a fraudulent. Um, and the plumbing claims now uh, being perpetrated. Uh, so that th- those are just kind of the two broad categories of, of we we'll call data loss uh, using cyber. Uh, second would be uh, what I would call business-oriented disruption or, or disruption to your, your systems and your platform. And th- these come in the form of a ransomware attack, a denial of service attack, or some type of destructive malware by which um, it completely um, disables your computer systems and your, and your networks that um, you know, essentially have an impact on your business operation. And really the motive behind those types of attacks is, uh, number one, you know, they're, they're trying to gain, the adversary is trying to gain some level of uh, strategic advantage. Perhaps they'd want to you know, disrupt and destroy your, uh, your reputation. In the ransomware uh, instance, that's obviously a bit of for-profit because they expect the individual or the company to pay the ransom. You know, Bottom-line impact would be a disruption to your business. And then the third category is uh, how I would call uh, fraudulent activity. So uh, this is in the form of siphoning funds out of your company. It could be in the form of a business email compromise where I compromise the CFO's email and I pretend to be that, that CFO and I request the wire outside of your company. It could be a sourcing manager. It could be anybody that has the ability to essentially move that money outside the company. And it's an extremely lucrative uh, opportunity for the adversaries and typically low-hanging
1: fruit. And the way that I always think about these kind of cyber risks, Chris, being in kind of the fraud profession is really the mechanics and the scalability. Uh, of these issues, you know the mechanics being how prevalent and how easy is it for someone to perpetrate this scheme, if you think about something like a business email compromise, uh, a lot of emails can get sent, but the getting the the feedback or getting someone to read the email and and do the action you 're asking them to do can be a little bit harder versus some of the more automated schemes you know stealing uh, that customer data or that personally identifiable information and and creating a bunch of unemployment claims you know can be done a little bit uh, quicker and with with a higher scale. Uh, is that a fair way to kind of scope out these risks in relation to each other?
3: Yeah, I, I think there's clearly, you know, a for-profit motive from an adversarial perspective. But again, it's it's all dependent on you know, who the individuals are. Are they competitors? Are they nation states? Or are they just criminal organizations? And and at the end of the day, there's a motive uh, behind their, their attacks. I also wouldn't discount the insider, uh, the trusted individual that uh, perhaps has uh, we call it privileged access to systems and platforms that could steal information. I mean, when I was running uh, data protection for a very large uh, global banking platform, we had pockets of our, our environment that were undergoing reduction in force. And uh, through our investigative analysis, we found a handful of, of folks uh, siphoning out uh, intellectual property, competitive data that would be moved to our competitors. And we worked very closely with our general counsel. And our compliance organizations ensure that um, you know we had appropriate protections. But the risk uh, landscape is fairly broad, and it really requires some precision. Um, but at the end of the day, you know you want to think about what I call the so factor. What are the downstream consequences to the business? Uh, and and if you think about how you scope out those risks, uh, it's really uh, an engagement between your cybersecurity organization, your enterprise risk function. And the line of business to really size that in a coordinated fashion.
1: Yeah. And if you hit on the right notes there, uh, you can really identify some meaningful information ahead of time. You know, I remember working with a very large uh, retirement management concern uh, where they could identify through their thousands of employees who was most likely to leave Uh, based on their internet traffic of their machines, and they would be sure to lock those people up uh, in terms of what they were allowed to access from a proprietary state as well. So uh, in some cases, Big Brother is watching, Chris, from a cybersecurity perspective. Absolutely. All right. So we've talked a little bit about what
2: the threats are or the shape they may take. Let's take a few minutes to explore the regulatory landscape. There are, of course, federal rules and state rules and regulations at play. There's something of a patchwork quilt that lays over the cybersecurity space. Uh, and so we kind of want to understand w- what that looks like, Chris. We're gonna we're gonna stick with you here. We want to know a little bit about how the states or state regulatory agencies fit into the picture. You know, for example, uh, New York's Department of Financial Services has a, a fairly robust cybersecurity regime in place. There are some other states that play in this space, including Colorado and California. So, tell us a little bit. What does the state regulatory landscape look like?
3: It's a great point, and it is. it creates a bit of complexity and fragmentation around ensuring that you've got the right level of compliance and meeting the state of the objectives assigned to each state. Uh, some companies have customers that are exclusively in a particular state and some other companies are spread across all 50, uh, including the international um, component. So you've got to think about you know, the application of that particular doing business in that state, the data that's possessed. Most of the uh, privacy laws, uh, as you know, come from uh, you know, particular states requiring breach notification requirements and specific mandates. California has a fairly aggressive uh, regime on, on privacy implications. But uh, as you stated, uh, New York DFS is also fairly uh, assertive in their cybersecurity requirements. Uh, they go as far as saying that if you're you a know, registered financial institution within the state, uh, you should have a dedicated chief information security officer. They're very specific in terms of policies, procedures, engagement with the board of directors. And in fact, uh, they've recently released uh, a cyber insurance risk framework. So now they're bleeding into the insurance industry. It's fairly specific. And fines could be enormous in, in, in general. And, and so you, know, you really need to take a look at your compliance program in relationship to the states that you operate. You know, I've always, uh, in running a cybersecurity program, I've looked at the you know, kind of the highest common denominator in terms of security requirements. And I've set you know, the bar fairly high, uh, particularly if it's, it's very difficult to segment uh, certain data sets. And that creates your standard and that one unified cybersecurity framework and standard uh, could satisfy a multitude of local jurisdictional requirements.
2: That's exactly how I think about it and how I've talked about these issues with clients in the past. I mean, it, it can be difficult particularly for for large corporations that are doing business in multiple states or perhaps all 50 states to try to figure out, you know, wh- what are the different or competing requirements. I, I know that gets particularly difficult when you think about notice or disclosure requirements because one state might give you 48 hours to tell the market that you've uh, had, had a breach, for example, and another state might give you several days. So I, I think the advice to sort of build a program around the the most restrictive requirement is, is right. It puts you in a safe space. And, and I also know a lot of companies look to New York because they were an early mover, but also because their regime is a little bit more restrictive than many of the others that are out there. and it's sort of it's sort of a situation where if you can satisfy New York, you're probably going to satisfy the other states that have something in, in in place. I mean, not not necessarily across the board, but it's a good place to start. Uh, it gets even more complicated, of course, when you layer, federal regulations on top of that because, of course, the states uh, aren't the only game in town. Uh, So, Robert, tell us a little bit about the federal cybersecurity regulatory landscape.
4: Honestly, we don't really have a good regulatory approach for cyber on the federal side. It's a huge challenge for companies who don't know what the expectations are, for investors who are challenged to determining long-term value implications, and for the public at large who are looking for confidence in our financial markets. For example, as we just discussed, several states have breach notification requirements, but we don't have a federal requirement. And states have taken up the mantle similar to sort of the blue sky laws of the days of old in securities infrastructure where the federal government has not stepped in. Another example the SEC has some rules for large systems of large participants in our securities market. It's called Regulation SEI, but a lot of the venues are left out. For the most part, Our regulatory approach has always been about the world we can see regulating the conduct of people, but cyber risk doesn't really fit into that rubric. The world that we can see has been quickly overtaken by the world we can't. The world of these complex back boxes, the machines who speak a language of ones and zeros hidden in server farms around the nation now dominate our economy. And we haven't figured out really how to adequately regulate this hidden world at the SEC. Commissioners have repeatedly criticized the outdated regulatory framework. My old boss, Kara Stein, was a vocal advocate for updating the regulations to accommodate a digital world. More recently, Commissioner Peirce has called for updating the approach for digital assets that, quote, could be a model for future regulation of new products and services, end quote. We also know that our existing framework for corporate governance doesn't quite work for cyber threats. Our model for corporate governance is like the early geocentric model of Ptolemy, where the earth was the center of the universe. Our regulatory paradigm has the company at the center with everyone and everything moving around it. So if you're Ptolemy, our corporate governance paradigm makes sense. The corporation is the center of the universe. Regulate the company, which is the center of the universe and all as well. But if you're Copernicus, it doesn't quite make sense. Each company is not the center of its own universe. That's because the stakes extend way beyond the typical corporate footprint. American corporations create, own, and operate nearly all of America's cyber infrastructure. The SolarWinds hack wasn't isolated to SolarWinds. SolarWinds sent infected code to a multitude of other clients, perhaps as many as 18,000 customers that opened an electronic doorway for hackers to enter into. We may never know how many of those doorways were used. We may never know the true cost of SolarWinds. We do know that inadequate corporate governance for cyber risk ripples throughout our economy. Deficient oversight of cyber risks, such as SolarWinds' lapse in oversight that allowed a long-running and undetected intrusion can extend beyond harm to shareholders, to customers, to employees, to our capital markets, and to our financial system. No one likes using the term systemic risk because the concept of systemic risk challenges our telemetric corporate governance framework. So let's use a better word, responsibility. In a word, American companies are directly responsible for our nation's cyber resilience. Good corporate governance means good cyber resilience. A paper that's forthcoming from the University of Pennsylvania Law Review describes the state of existing corporate governance data as quote-unquote mystery meat. I think it's a colorful term that applies to corporate governance over cyber risk. Corporate governance over cyber risk is simply mystery meat to investors and other stakeholders. From a public policy standpoint, we are simply doing a wretched job at overseeing cyber risk, and the public expects us to do better. Since companies are refusing to lead in this area, policymakers are jumping in to fill the gap, and the pace is quickening. For example, last year, the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, passed in December, was codified into law after overriding a presidential veto in January of this year and was simply bursting with cyber risk provisions in 77 separate articles. 27 of the 77 provisions, nearly one out of every three, came from bipartisan CyberSafe Solarium Commission that was formed as a prior NDAA provision the CyberSafe Solarium Commission has recommended that the Securities and Exchange Commission quote-unquote move strenuously to mandate reporting on the effectiveness of a public company's cyber controls. The SEC's prior chair refused, but I think you're likely to see some changes in the scenario in 2021. Also, by the time this podcast is available, Senator Jack Reed and Representative Jim Himes will have introduced companion bills that will require publicly traded companies to disclose whether any board member is a cybersecurity expert, and if not, quote, why having this expertise on the board of directors is not necessary, end quote. But it's still early, and I expect you will see an unprecedented number of measures introduced this year.
2: I like the way that you've sort of framed this almost as, uh, you know, an area where we can certainly do better, but also an area where there there may be some gaps. And of course, the cybersecurity isn't the only space we we talk about. Many of these areas here on the Insecurities podcast, we've talked about uh, robo advisors and digital assets. Um, you know, we've talked about the possible new disclosure regime. So I think there are a lot of areas where the SEC is is going to do more, or where Congress might do more, and, and we're just not quite there yet. But that's not to say that the SEC hasn't done anything. Uh, in fact, Chris, uh, Chris Hetner, while, while you were cybersecurity advisor to Chairman Clayton, the SEC's enforcement division created a cyber unit to target cyber-related misconduct. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that.
3: And the cyber unit uh, formed or announced in uh, September 2017, its focus is really centered on cyber-related misconduct. and. I'll I'll enumerate some of the examples here. Number one would be any type of market manipulation scheme involving the introduction of false information spread through electronic and social media that could have a negative impact. Hacking into uh, what we call non-public or material non-public information from a company's network and using that uh, to uh, gain illicit profits. Any type of violation involving some form of digital ledger technology or initial coin offerings such as blockchain that could uh, cause some type of fraudulent um, activity and illicit gains. They're also uh, highly focused on any type of misconduct perpetrated using the dark web to gain inside information, any type of intrusion involving a retail brokerage account where Personal identifiable or investor data has been stolen. We've seen several types of cases involving that area. And then uh, finally, uh, cyber related threats to specific trading platforms and other critical market infrastructure. And this is where reg systems compliance integrity is applicable in ensuring that the uh, core market uh, infrastructure is uh, is sound and safe uh, from any type of, you know, we call it malicious or non-malicious cyber event. Uh, Not all events are created equal. There could be an event that occurs by mistake by uh, introducing um, just false source code as a result of inadequate practices. And the Division of Enforcement, with the eye on cyber, it's really focused on three general categories from a case perspective. One- Uh, Any type of violation to rules infecting market participants. So market participants fail to appropriate steps to safeguard information and ensure system integrity uh, could fall victim of an enforcement action. Two, any type of unlawful market advantage or market manipulation uh, sought by an entity. Cyber-related conduct is used to gain some sort of unlawful market advantage or manipulate the price of a stock. And then three, uh, the disclosure failures. Any publicly traded companies fail to make appropriate material cyber-related disclosures. So that's how we think about the formation of the cyber unit, the types of areas that they're looking at in terms of uh, misconduct and the specific enforcement actions that they can bring to the entity.
1: Yeah, Chris, to me, that's when uh, you know cyber Topics were formalized right at the SEC enforcement uh, division. Uh, they'd always been dealt with in, in some respect, but but seem to be kind of coming together uh, in, into that unit. So great to hear a recap of what they're focused on. You know, in a similar vein, the accounting world got dealt with a little bit of cyber medicine back in in 2018 when it was, you know, highlighted and and there was a little bit of formalization about uh, cybersecurity issues as it related to uh you know internal controls and in accounting. And in October of 2018, the SEC released its investigative report titled Public Companies Should Consider Cyber Threats When Implementing Internal Accounting Controls. I know for all of the CPAs out there, there was a little bit of a shaking in their boots that had to think about cybersecurity when uh, maybe that wasn't something on their radar before. But Robert, I know you followed that report closely. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the SEC described in in that investigative report?
4: I I did, and I can talk about that. The SEC released its report of investigation concerning about nine issuers and their compliance with the internal control and books and records provisions of the federal securities laws. One company made 14 wire Transfers or payments over $45 million to a fake executive over the course of a number of weeks. The fraud was only stopped when a foreign bank raised the alarm. Another issuer paid millions of dollars in invoices to a fake vendor. The fraud was only revealed when the real vendor complained about not getting paid. The Commission issued this report to resolve any confusion that companies may have with respect to their requirement to devise and maintain a system of internal controls that considers the nature and extent of cyber threats. The federal securities law requires issuers to protect their assets. By issuing the report, the Commission put the public companies on notice. I think we can expect to see enforcement action taken against companies that fail to design and maintain a system of internal controls that do not address cyber-related threats.
1: Yeah, I think this is when business email compromise, you know, that phrase really entered the accounting lexicon. And, and those nine issuers you talked about all seem to suffer from similar uh, yet different iterations of that scheme. The line that sticks with me, I'll read just a little bit from the conclusion of the report. By this report, the commission is not suggesting that every issuer that is, the victim of a cyber-related scam is, by extension, in violation of the internal accounting controls requirements of the federal securities law. What is clear, however, is that the internal accounting controls may need to be reassessed in light of emerging risks, including risks arising from cyber-related frauds. And Robert, you spent some time you know, watching The Watchers, as we talked about back on episode uh, 17 with the PCAOB. What are the roles of kind of internal controls and accountants in monitoring and implementing that recommendation from from the SEC?
4: Well, as you mentioned earlier, COVID-19 and our changes in how we work uh, presents new opportunities, but it also presents new risks. As we just discussed, the internal controls and books and records provisions of the federal securities laws do encompass consideration of cyber risks and threats. Both the company and the auditor have obligations to focus on controls and systems that impact the financial statements. First, management must evaluate the effectiveness of the controls and disclosure procedures. And both have a shared responsibility ensuring that periodic reports such as the 10-K, the annual report, and the Form 10-Q, the quarterly report, as well as other current reports such as the Forms 8-K, continue to provide timely and ongoing information on material cybersecurity risks and incidents. For the auditor, auditing standards require that the financial statement auditor obtain an understanding of how the company uses information technology and the impact of information technology on the financial statements, which would involve an assessment of cybersecurity risks and threats. The auditor must also consider PCOB Auditing Standard 2710, It's right. also called as Other Information Standard. The standard requires that auditors consider a company's disclosures outside of the context of financial statements. While cybersecurity is not explicitly addressed in auditing standards, The PCIB has highlighted that cybersecurity risk would continue to be a focus of its own inspections program and has highlighted cybersecurity and the role of auditors in evaluating cybersecurity risk in board speeches and other communications. And auditors uh, can do more, like attest level functions, as well as evaluation of the cybersecurity framework.
2: We've talked a little bit about what the threats are, and now we sort of see what the landscape looks like. But let's talk a little bit about what areas we should expect to feature in the legislative and regulatory cybersecurity agenda in 2021 and and really throughout the Biden administration. And I think, you know, we've touched on it a little bit, but maybe the place that makes sense to start is with COVID 19. Uh, You know, the pandemic has, of course, created new risks and cybersecurity challenges for companies. Chris, you've looked at this a bit. Why don't you tell us what some of those new threats look like?
3: The threat landscape will continue to evolve. Uh, we'll see a continuation of ransomware attacks. Uh, the adversaries will look at low-hanging fruit, such as uh, systems and platforms and companies who have uh, poor hygiene practices for those companies that are you know, fortified uh, and have you know, appropriate defenses that ultimately um, creates complexity for the adversary. So they'll tend to move uh, to those other platforms and systems. And so, um, as the workforce is distributed, as we continue to work from home, individuals are distracted. Uh, We're now more vulnerable uh, to clicking on a phishing email, receiving a scam through a text. Uh, So, we'll continue to see that activity. And certainly, with the high concentration of technology, uh, utilities, and other types of platforms we're starting to see uh, more of a focus on systemic risk. Uh, Think of solo ends, think of the um, recent attack on Microsoft Exchange. The adversaries realize that if they attack a singular platform or technology utility, uh, they can gain better scale because now that's integrated across the entire ecosystem. So we'll see a renewed focus on that. And in fact, DHS, uh, CISA, organization through the National Risk Management Center has uh, spun up an effort called a risk-based approach to national cybersecurity. And the effort uh, will be squarely focused on the identification and reduction of systemic cyber risk. Uh, They'll reinforce the importance of good practices, the implementation of widely endorsed security safeguards to digital enterprises, um, and understanding that the range of attacks, whether it's ransomware impacting a higher education or a hospital or the stolen data compromise American sensitive information, the impact of cybersecurity uh, on our daily lives is more visible than ever. And, and so, through this National Risk Management Center, they'll be introducing a systemic cyber risk reduction venture starting in 2021. Uh, It's built upon three overarching efforts. Number one, it's developing an underlying architecture for cyber risk analysis to critical infrastructure. There are 16 critical infrastructure domains within the DHS uh, CISA portfolio, uh, ranging from financial service sector to healthcare to energy. The critical infrastructure community, uh, as we all know, is underpinned and dependent on a web of cloud providers, hardware, software, services, and other connected componentry that can um, cause some level of systemic exposure and is actively targeted by the adversary. So ultimately, uh, cyber risk needs to be measured at the national level in terms of the loss of functionality. Second, the NRMC will establish a set of cyber risk metrics supporting efforts to understand the impact of cyber risk across critical infrastructure communities, developing and deploying metrics to quantify cyber risk in terms of functional loss. Again, it's expressing cyber risk that's traditionally a tactical matter to business and economic outcomes. Uh, We've seen through the emergence of security ratings, uh, driving a level of cyber risk quantification as a way to calculate and measure cyber risk exposure. It's a starting point, and it will provide the level of financial exposure to the extent that those ratings contextualize cyber risk and enterprise level of exposure. The goal of the cyber risk metrics effort is to build on existing efforts that are commercially adopted, uh, bring a series of partners and capabilities into the fold, and, and welcome ideas in terms of how uh, establishing meaningful cyber metrics can inform national security decisions. And then third, uh, promoting a set of tools to address the concentration of sources of cyber risk. So central to the venture through the National Risk Management Center is to reduce systemic cyber risk and finding concentration of sources of risk that, if mitigated, provide heightened risk management bang for the buck. So it's really about the relationship between the finite resources we have to apply to cybersecurity, and ensuring that the enterprise and and certain industry segments understand the expression of that cyber exposure through um, systemic risk and economic risk outcomes in order to make some decisions around how do you maximize the reduction of that risk exposure. So I expect this entire uh, space and this topic will start to permeate throughout DHS, CISA, CISA. The White House initiative will see this applied to other industry segments, such as the U.S. Treasury and the other regulatory bodies that focus on different market segments.
1: Chris, I think you've touched on a lot of great stuff there. Robert, what are your thoughts on where we're going with the Biden administration in 2021 and cybersecurity?
4: As I talked about a little earlier, I think there's going to be a lot going on, and you'll be seeing a lot more work on cyber, more legislation and more regulation. As Chris Hetner and I talked about in a blog post we wrote for NACD earlier this year, the Biden administration is clearly prioritizing cybersecurity. The Solarium Commission, that we also talked about a little bit earlier, has called for a Sarbanes-Oxley-like provision for public companies. And in the U.S. Senate, Senator Warner and Senator Gardner in 2016 created a cybersecurity caucus that has been active and will continue to be active. You also have the attention of key members of Congress that are prioritizing cyber response as well. They are conducting hearings and trying to find solutions. Members of Congress are also recognizing that our public companies have a role to play. The threat to our economy is too great and cannot be contained by focusing solely on our nation's defense infrastructure. I think you'll see legislation outside of the context of the National Defense Authorization Act. I think you will see a number of pieces of legislation. There will also be significant action by federal regulators, including the independent agencies like the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, the CFTC, the CFPB, and more. While my crystal ball is always a bit cloudy, I think you'll see, one, more money being directed towards state and local cybersecurity investment, continued attention on how to protect future elections from cyber threats, federal legislation to report cyber breaches to the government, and reconsideration of cyber insurance. Moreover, I think you'll see a lot more attention being placed on our capital markets. Put very simply, either private enterprises will work to close the gap or will be dictated by Congress.
2: Let's take a few minutes to talk about some cautionary tales and some best practices so that our listeners can take those away and and maybe figure out if there are things for them to learn or do better. Chris, I want to start with you and maybe just tell me, you know, in your experience or based on your observations, what are companies getting wrong?
3: Depending on the industry and those particular industries that are highly regulated that have been, you know, forced to make investments, um, I think are are a higher maturity curve in terms of their capability. I mean, nobody's immune to a cyber attack, but um, I've seen the relationship between, you know, heightened regulation. Um, increased oversight and requirements that are fairly specific and defined, apply to a specific industry segment and and having those industries uh, well-funded and and therefore more resilient to a cyber attack. The companies, at the end of the day, um, need to have a culture for cybersecurity that's front and centered, that's anchored to the enterprise risk management agenda. If cybersecurity is treated as a, a back office technology issue, not brought to the attention of the, of the CEO and the board, uh, you're invariably going to fail because it's not getting the right attention. Companies um, still struggle with the disconnect between cyber security as the enterprise risk matter and how it's understood through the Enterprise Risk Management Committee and the board of directors, expressing that cyber risk to economic and business outcomes so that it's actionable by the non technical persona, I see that as a major gap in the uh, ability for a company to truly govern cyber. Think of as you know you're you're speaking with somebody that's speaking a different language. You don't understand that language. Then uh, the barrier uh, creates the disconnect and causes uh, inadequate risk management and governance practices. This time last year, the National Association of Corporate Directors issued a survey across their membership. And one of the results that I found interesting is seven, roughly 70% of the NACD board community did not put forth metrics uh, for management, did not put forth key performance indicators on cyber expectations across management teams. Therefore, the majority of the corporate directors are you know, more passively engaged on cyber. I think we need to You know, switch that that dynamic to be more assertive, more engaged on the dialogue, and companies need to think about uh, how to prioritize those investments to ensure that you're not only getting the biggest bang for the buck, but you're aligning your investments to those most critical assets to the company mission, enterprise objective, and ensuring that you have the appropriate level of resilience.
2: Chris, did I catch a, a KPIs reference in there? I mean, I know that must warm your heart.
1: I just, if I can evaluate things through standardized and objective metrics, Kurt, my day is made. That's <laughs> oh, what we man. do here, Robert. Chris touched on some of the things that any company can be doing today to consider cyber risk uh, to the level of significance that we probably believe on this podcast it should. What other elements do you think companies can consider implementing to to make sure they're mitigating cyber risk appropriately?
4: Well, first of all, I completely agree with Chris Hetner that the culture needs to be less of a compliance exercise and more of an enterprise risk exercise. For too long, I think boards have said, do we have the policies? Do we have the procedures? Check. Let's move on. And for too long, we've responded to cyber threats by locking the doors, closing the curtains and turning out the lights, hoping to fool the cyber criminals that we're not home. Or we take a duck and cover approach, hiding under our desks, hoping that we'll be spares. But those days are over and cyber risks are dynamic and pervasive. The attack vectors are all around us, and some have called it a hidden war. Stealth soldiers, merely pulses of light on a fiber cable, are constantly bombarding our nation's banks, hospitals, utilities, payment systems, and public companies, interfering with operations, stealing intellectual property, creating chaos and mischief. The threat may be from foreign actors like those who hacked the SEC's EDGAR system in 2016, generating illegal insider trading profits of over 4 million. The threat may come from within, or it may come from a trusted vendor on a supply chain like SolarWinds. Senior executives and boards must step up and must be responsible public citizens. This means not only dedicating resources, but leading more and with better oversight of cyber risk. Every board member, CEO, CFO, and CISO should ask, what am I now doing to assess and respond to cyber risks? And what are we doing to ensure the nation's cyber infrastructure? We should... Translate into action, and that action should translate into disclosure for investors and others. Investors are going to be holding companies accountable. Last year, there were three new private securities class actions related to inadequate cyber oversight. Nearly all of the cases alleged missed earnings guidance or misleading future performance rather than mere regulatory issues. Companies simply must take a proactive approach with a constant risk assessment of cyber and stop doing this checklist exercise.
1: I would agree, Robert. I don't know if I've ever worked with a client, what I'll say, is in the middle uh, in terms of cybersecurity considerations. Either it, it is that checklist kind of format and, and limited intelligence related to that issue, or uh, they've already had an attack or or have a, have a strong board and an executive team with a posture towards cybersecurity. So I think I agree uh, across all the companies I've worked with. Kurt, you see something similar in there being a gap in the middle? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that that hits the nail on the head. That's what I've observed. It's what I've talked to
2: folks about. And it's certainly an area where there is uh, considerable room for improvement. Cue the game show music. It is time for the lightning round. We're looking for some quick hits here. We're going to have some multiple choice questions, a couple questions where we just need your best guess. You guys ready? You want to get started?
4: Yes. Let's
2: do it. All right, here we go. Let's get it going. The
1: first question is... Chris, starting with you, what is your favorite movie about cybersecurity? War Games with
3: Matthew Broderick. <laughs> I love was about it. To say
1: same thing. Oh, so, Agreement. We've got Agreement from our guest. A
3: close second for me would be Swordfish.
1: Swordfish, also good.
3: Yep. Hugh Jackman and and John Travolta.
1: I'm partial to uh, Die Hard. I think it's five or seven or thirteen, whichever one was related to the uh, <laughs> the fire sale. <laughs> we talked a little bit about how the uh, the internet interacts with our utility companies. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Of course we can't discount the matrix.
1: Yeah. Uh, Right. Matrix
3: 1, 3, or or 4.
2: All right. We're going to go back to uh, regularly scheduled question number two. This one is multiple choice. So no pressure, guys. Recent studies showed there is a hacker attack every A, 30 minutes, B, 3 minutes, C, 30 seconds, or D, 3 seconds seconds. Uh, either of you have a guess? You want to grab one and go first?
4: I'll say every 30 seconds. Yeah, I'm going to say 30 seconds.
2: Man, you guys are, are top notch. The actual answer is 39 seconds. But yes, that's the correct answer for, for our survey. We we're trying to keep it simple, um, which I just was actually kind of blown away by that. Maybe it's not surprising to you guys who practice more in this space. But man, every 39 seconds, there's a hacker attack. That That's just surprising to me.
1: Yeah, imagine how many hacker attacks have happened during this episode of the Insecurities <laughs> podcast. Uh, definitely a correlation without causation, but uh, many of them going down. Another multiple choice question for you guys. On average, how much does a public company's share price fall immediately after a cybersecurity breach is announced? A. 5 and a quarter percent, B. 7 and a quarter percent, C. 9 and a quarter percent. Or D, eleven and a quarter percent. Chris, we'll start with you. I'm gonna say
3: somewhere in the seven to eight percent.
1: Robert, what do you got?
4: Yeah, I'm gonna say seven to nine percent.
1: You guys, know your stuff. We didn't even circulate
2: the questions in advance. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Next question. Uh, obviously, there has been an uptick in the number of cyber attacks reported during the COVID 19 pandemic. And in, in fact, the FBI released a report where they quantified how much the number of reported cyber crimes has gone up. So, over the last year, has the number of reported cyber crimes gone up by 150%, 200%? 250% or
4: 300%? I'll say 250%.
2: Yes, same. Success. We've got one wrong here. No, maybe that's not success. You're <laughs> <laughs> close though. It's 300%. So you got yeah. the right end of the range. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Also pretty pretty astounding. But I guess at a hack every 39 seconds, it's going to go up. That's right. Moving on here. Uh, what is the estimated percentage of cybersecurity breaches that are due to to human error 98 percent 95 percent 88 percent or 85 percent robert what do you think
4: uh 95 percent chris
3: 88 percent.
2: all right it's it's 95 again according to our to our um to the research we've done uh again i i found that one a little bit surprising that it that much is due to human error uh but there you have it
1: uh chris we got a couple more of these Yeah, I think we should wrap it up with our final question. Maybe a little tip for everybody who's still hung around this late in the podcast. What's one thing that every person should do right now to help mitigate their cyber risk?
4: I would say, um, well, I would say change your passwords. Um, Yeah,
1: pretty straightforward. Chris, same question. What should someone do right now to mitigate their cyber risk?
4: Slow down and
1: think
3: before you click or open the email
1: always good we deal with a lot of business email compromises and what we like to say is pick up the darn phone <laughs> when you get an email from the cfo asking you to wire 400 grand to some vendor you never heard of so yeah slowing down <laughs> slowing down is a good idea here absolutely right all right guys thanks for uh, participating in the lightning round it was good to learn a little <laughs> bit along you. the way
2: <laughs> thanks hey guys.
1: thanks for joining us for this episode of the insecurities podcast and a special thanks to our guests, Chris Hentner and Robert Peek. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as host Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.